Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Alcohol use disorders are highly prevalent in the general population. Mental health care for patients with these disorders can be improved by enhancing clinicians' understanding of the etiology of alcohol use disorders. To do this, the authors of this article used data from a sample of more than 2,000 adults to identify predictors of the first incidence of alcohol use disorders during four years of follow-up. The study sample consisted of participants in the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety, referred to as the NESDA. The NESDA receives funding from the Netherlands Organization for Health Research and Development. In the study, the authors considered depressive and anxiety disorders, as well as several sociodemographic, vulnerability, and addiction-related factors as potential predictors. The study results showed that patients with depressive or anxiety disorders have an increased risk of developing alcohol dependence, and this risk increases with the severity of depressive and anxiety disorders. In addition, sub-threshold alcohol problems and recent negative life events are other independent risk factors for alcohol dependence. Another important finding was that the first incidence of alcohol abuse, in contrast to dependence, was not related to the presence of depressive and anxiety disorders. This finding agrees with previous studies that call into question whether alcohol abuse, as diagnosed by the current diagnostic criteria in DSM-4, should be considered a genuine psychiatric disorder. These findings, the authors conclude, underline the importance of addiction prevention strategies for depressed and anxious patients in mental health care, especially in those patients with sub-threshold alcohol problems who are facing stressful life events. Second-generation antipsychotics have been linked in some studies to an increase in risk of cardiometabolic events including diabetes, myocardial infarction, stroke, and other adverse outcomes. The risk appears to vary by drug, however, rather than being a consistent effect of the entire class of second-generation antipsychotics. A study funded by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Otsuka used a large insurance claims database to investigate the risk of diabetes and cardiovascular events in patients prescribed aripiprazole, olanzapine, quetiapine, risperidone, or ziprazidone. Patients who initiated aripiprazole treatment were matched to patients using each of the other drugs on a range of characteristics using propensity score techniques. Results showed an increased risk of some cardiovascular outcomes with some of the drugs compared with aripiprazole, including a higher risk of stroke and any cardiovascular event with olanzapine, and a higher risk of stroke, 
heart failure, and any cardiovascular event with quetiapine and risperidone, but no differences in risk with ziprazidone. The risk of developing diabetes was similar across all of the second-generation antipsychotics. Because of their reinforcing effects in dopamine stimulation, anti-dopaminergic interventions have been considered as a potential treatment for primary cocaine and psychostimulant dependence. The authors of the current study conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis to comprehensively study the evidence for the efficacy and tolerability of antipsychotics in patients with cocaine or psychostimulant dependence. The authors identified 14 double-blind studies, including 741 participants. Ten studies were conducted in patients with cocaine dependence, and four studies were conducted in patients with amphetamine and or methamphetamine dependence. The authors found that when assessed individually and pooled together, antipsychotics did not differ from placebo regarding the degree of cocaine use. Moreover, when antipsychotics were pooled together, they had no advantages over placebo for depression, anxiety, or global illness severity. By contrast, study discontinuation due to adverse effects was significantly more common with antipsychotics than with placebo. The authors conclude that there is currently no evidence supporting the use of antipsychotics for cocaine and psychostimulant dependence. Strategies other than blocking of dopamine transmission need to be used to treat primary cocaine and psychostimulant dependence. Postoperative delirium commonly occurs in surgical patients and is associated with prolonged hospital stays, impaired functional recovery, and higher mortality rates. Because the evidence for an effective treatment for postoperative delirium is lacking, preventing it is desirable. To help determine a possible role for antipsychotics in delirium prevention, a systematic review and meta-analysis was conducted. The analysis included randomized controlled trials of the prophylactic use of antipsychotics in surgical patients, and the primary outcome was incidence of delirium. Pool data across six studies showed less incidence of delirium in patients treated with prophylactic antipsychotics than in those receiving placebo. Individually, haloperidol did not differ from placebo on this outcome, but the second-generation antipsychotics, olanzapine and risperidone, were superior to placebo. However, if patients did develop delirium, prophylactic antipsychotics did not reduce its severity. Antipsychotics did not differ from placebo on secondary measures, such as length of hospital stay and duration of delirium. Decreases in the number of inpatient beds, as well as length of admission, have brought about concerns that suicide rates would increase among psychiatric patients who have been hospitalized. Manson and colleagues conducted a study using general population registry data for Denmark from 1998 through 2005. They estimated changes over time in suicide rates among psychiatric inpatients and recently discharged patients and looked specifically at links to gender and diagnosis. 
The overall inpatient suicide rate declined in psychiatric patients admitted from 1998 through 2005, particularly among women. The overall rate of suicide in the three-month post-discharge period also declined significantly, which was explained mostly by falling rates among men and among patients diagnosed with schizophrenia. The authors emphasize that although they found a decrease in suicide rates, the rates are still very high, and attention to the issue of suicide in mental health care settings must continue. Currently available antipsychotic drugs alleviate in many patients some, but not all, symptoms of schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. The need for more efficacious medications for treatment refractory patients led the authors of this article to investigate the putative utility of pharmacological augmentation strategies. The authors hypothesized that the anti-tumor agent bexerotene through nuclear retinoid X-receptor activation might modulate numerous metabolic pathways involved in the pathogenesis of schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. The study they conducted was supported by the Stanley Medical Research Institute. The authors described 90 inpatients and outpatients who met DSM-4 criteria for schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and participated in a six-week, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, multi-center study. Bexerotene was added to the ongoing antipsychotic treatment. 79 participants completed the protocol. Compared to patients who received placebo, Patients who received adjunctive bexerotene had significantly lower scores on a measure of positive symptoms. Patients with mean or higher baseline scores on the positive symptom measure and patients who did not take lipid-reducing agents revealed greater amelioration of positive symptoms. Bexerotene was well-tolerated, although two reversible side effects were reported a significant increase in total cholesterol levels, and a decrease in T4 levels. The authors conclude that if these initial findings are confirmed in larger randomized controlled trials, bexerotene may represent a novel therapeutic advance for the treatment of schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Although effective treatments for alcohol use disorders are available, literature on the long-term clinical outcomes of quitting drinking is scarce. To fill this gap, a meta-analysis funded by Lundbeck was conducted to look at mortality outcomes in alcohol use disorder patients eight years after treatment. Across 16 studies, the risk of death for people with alcohol use disorders who reduced their alcohol consumption was reduced by about 40% compared to patients who continued heavy drinking. The risk of death for patients who reached abstinence was about half compared to those who reduced their alcohol consumption without reaching abstinence. The authors emphasize that although abstinent patients showed the lowest mortality risk, Treatments that show evidence of achieving a reduction in drinking without reaching abstinence should be preferred to no treatment at all. Studies show that prolonged exposure psychotherapy is one of the most effective treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder. Exposure therapy is based on learning new responses to trauma-related memories and stimuli. 
Some studies suggest that benzodiazepines can interfere with extinction of conditioned fear responses. Because many patients with PTSD are prescribed benzodiazepines, it is important to determine whether benzodiazepine users can benefit from exposure therapy. In this month's continuing medical education offering, a group affiliated with the Department of Veterans Affairs reanalyzed data from a previous psychotherapy trial to assess whether benzodiazepine use reduced response to prolonged exposure therapy in 282 female veterans and soldiers with PTSD. They received either prolonged exposure psychotherapy or supportive present-centered psychotherapy. Medication use was not randomized, but the researchers noted whether participants were taking benzodiazepines. They found that prolonged exposure therapy produced greater reductions in PTSD symptoms than present-centered therapy did, and prolonged exposure helped both those who did and did not use benzodiazepines. However, benzodiazepine use was associated with worse response to present-centered psychotherapy, and benzodiazepine users had a rebound in symptoms after present-centered psychotherapy was completed. Non-adherence to medication is a tremendous problem among people with schizophrenia. Many homeless people have untreated serious mental illness. Long-acting injectable antipsychotic medication might help these individuals, but it is underused in the United States. To assess outcomes of this treatment, a six-month uncontrolled trial was performed of customized adherence enhancement plus long-acting injectable treatment with haloperidol in 30 homeless or recently homeless individuals with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Similar to most reports in the literature, the study sample was largely composed of minorities, and most had few social supports and limited education. Nearly all had current or past substance abuse, and nearly all had been in jail or prison. Although one-third of the sample dropped out early, the combination of psychosocial intervention and injectable medication was associated with good adherence, and 76% were adherent at six months. The major side effect was akathisia, which was experienced by 40% of individuals. Oral medication adherence improved dramatically. At study enrollment, 46% of medication was missed, compared to only 10% at study end. Significant improvements also occurred in psychiatric symptoms and functioning. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Psychoeducation, a term that refers to the giving of information on a health condition and its management, is commonly provided to service users with schizophrenia and their family members. Many of these psychoeducational programs target family members with the assumption that providing them with information on schizophrenia and teaching them how best to cope with caring demands and how to use problem-solving techniques will enhance their capability to cope with caring and, in turn, reinforce a better prognosis for the service users themselves. 
The authors of this review examine the effectiveness of psychoeducation for family members, and they identify the common essential ingredients, delivery formats, and implementation considerations of successful interventions. The study was supported by the eSibling Research Project and the National Institute for Health Research. Overall, the authors found consistent evidence that psychoeducation is often effective in enhancing family members' knowledge about the ability to better cope with the illness. Family members are usually very receptive to psychoeducation and believe it should be offered to every family as soon as a family member begins receiving mental health services. Group programs that draw family members together to discuss common problems and support one another are widespread and are well received by those involved. In addition to providing information and peer support within the design of successful programs, the review also identifies a range of implementation considerations that clinicians should consider to enhance attendance, retention, and completion rate. Successful treatment of psychiatric disorders is hindered by poor adherence to medical treatment. Among other factors, adherence is affected by a medication's profile of treatment-emergent adverse events. This study, which was sponsored by Eli Lilly, examined the influence of different dosing schedules and recent stimulant therapy on the safety profile of anamoxetine. Safety data from 22 pediatric and 3 adult atomoxetine trials were analyzed. In pediatric patients, time to onset of all treatment-emergent adverse events was significantly shorter for those who received dosing once daily versus those who received it twice daily. The time to onset of the adverse events abdominal pain decreased appetite and somnolence was significantly shorter for those who received fast titration versus those who received slow titration. Pediatric patients also experienced a significantly longer duration of decreased appetite and nausea with once daily dosing. Abdominal pain, decreased appetite, and fatigue were more common in stimulant-naive patients versus patients with prior stimulant use. In adult patients, insomnia had a significantly shorter time to onset and longer duration with twice-daily versus once-daily dosing and fast versus slow titration. The authors conclude that both time to onset and time to resolution of treatment-emergent adverse events appear dependent on dosing schedule and titration speed. These findings can help improve the management of tolerability issues and set appropriate expectations for clinicians and patients during atomoxetine titration. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at the use of clomipramine augmentation in patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder. Clomipramine may improve treatment response in patients who have not responded adequately to an SSRI. However, physicians should be aware of possible risks and adverse effects with this combination. Dr. Andrade discusses the benefits as well as the necessary monitoring associated with this course of treatment. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. 
In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.